Last week we left off the final event that we mentioned was uh, the disaster that became of the northern kingdom of Israel. Uh, they were captured by the Assyrians under the leadership of Sancheirib, uh, and they're gone. And like we mentioned last week, it's likely that we'll never see them again, and they're gone from the Jewish people. All we have left is the southern kingdom of Judah, and the southern kingdom of Judah is going to be what is going to comprise the uh, people of Israel. So just did, uh, for those of you who were not there last week, just to kind of where are we in time and history, uh, we're talking about the history of, of the Jewish people in Israel, uh, and we are right now about 25, 20, between 25 and 2600 years ago, so between 5 and 6, between the 5th uh, and 6th century before the Common Era. Uh, and we have, like we said, a major event uh, that preceded that a couple hundred years earlier where there was a secession, there was a split amongst, you know, in the country. You know, there became two countries. And uh, the southern, ironically, the southern uh, kingdom is the one that lasted um, uh, out of that civil war. By the way, you can go on the website. What, what's Jen's website? Uh, PBS.org. Yeah, PBS.org, and you can see that show. You mm-hmm. don't have to have a CD. It's probably up there. Okay. That uh, What was it? At Seeds Con- of Conflict, Conflict 1913. 1913. And if you all haven't seen it, yeah. it was on last Tuesday night. It, it deals exactly with kind of what we're talking about, except in 1913, and it talks about uh, the Muslims and the Jews and the Christians and all of that living in Jerusalem and all well, of it coming together, all the beginnings. It's very mm-hmm. interesting. Yes. You're recording this. Are you going to make this part one and part two yes. on your? Yes, it's ready. Part one's ready. I left up. my folder in the car. Don't worry about it. it. Don't worry about it. No, you don't have to get uh, it. Okay, so, uh, so uh, the southern kingdom is going to outlast uh, them, and we're going to meet a new empire. This time they're called the Babylonian Empire. Right? Babylon is 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 further east, right? Which present day Iraq is is the ancient Babylon. And they are going to march onto Jerusalem, and they're going to destroy Jerusalem. Uh, now, this uh, Jerusalem was destroyed twice. Jewish people sent it to exile twice. It happened not once but twice. Both times, as we now can uh, can can recognize, both times the Jewish people have come back to Israel. Right? One time we were kicked out of Israel, and we came back seventy years later. And the next time we were kicked out of Israel, and we came back two thousand years later. But either way, when we kicked out, we are kicked out, and it takes us some time, but eventually we'll get back to, uh, to Israel. And like the Torah foretells, that uh, the Jewish people are going to be kicked out of Israel, and they're going to come back. Uh, but the Babylonians come, and they destroy. Uh, well, they, 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 they first, they, they occupy uh, the known world at the time. This is a, the theme uh, of the great empires of that time, that they uh, occupy, they capture, they conquer uh, the entire cradle of civilization, Mesopotamia, that whole area, uh, including North Africa and parts of, uh, of, of, of Europe as well. But Israel is always at the center of that. We'll see more how Israel uh, be, is, is, is a very disadvantageous lo- locale because any capturing and any activity, it's right there at the, at the intersection of, of Europe and Asia and Africa. It's right near the water, and it's always going to be trampled upon uh, by the various conquering empires. Uh, so they're captured, captured by the Babylonians, uh, and there's a systematic uh, or, or progressive, or even regressive is probably the right word, uh, dismantling of the Jewish infrastructure. So what happens is that the, the 
the destruction kind of goes in stages. Uh, the first thing that happens is actually 10 years before the temple is actually destroyed, uh, the dates that we have for the temple being destroyed is year 432 before the Common Era. Mm-hmm. And 10 years before that, so that's 442 before the Common Era, we have uh, a, uh, a group of 10,000 people that are sent to Babylon in exile. Now, who are these people? The doctors, the lawyers, the rabbis, the scholars, all the elite, all the leadership, so to speak. So essentially, like, as if you pull the leadership away from the people and you replant them uh, in Babylon. Now, in Jewish history, this is presented as one of the great episodes of, of, of godly intervention. Uh, now, at the time, the people were, you know, they saw the temple and they were under foreign control, but they've been under foreign control uh, off and on for some time now. And suddenly, overnight, like all the great people are rounded up and, and sent out. And you're like, dude, what's left of us? You know, what, what's left of the community? But uh, the foresight, uh, obviously the Almighty knew what's, what was going to happen. And it was essentially written on the wall what was going to happen. This was not going to last. It, it, was, it, was, a, it was a dying uh, commonwealth uh, that was in Israel. Uh, but the, 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 the vision was to reestablish a very vibrant, very dynamic Jewish community in Babylon. And the best way to do that is to take the great leaders and bring them there earlier so that when the Jewish people in their entirety, they were all sent into exile to Babylon, they get there. And you know what they find? Jewish schools, right? Beidel shops in every corner, right? Mm -hmm. (laughs) Uh, uh, Schools and shuls and mikvahs and everything is ready. So there's there's a vibrant community and it's there and it's ready to go. Um, And as we know, the Jewish community in Babylon flourished uh, at some, over the next essentially told this past century there was a, a very strong Jewish community in Babylon. But if you look at the, you know, the first millennium, so to speak, uh, of the Common Era, the, for the majority of the time, the dynamic Jewish center was in Babylon. You know, even when the temple was in, was in Israel, even the second temple, 400 years, when the second temple is in Israel, there's always going to be a concurrent community in Babylon uh, where, incidentally, they're going to be recognized politically. Uh, they're going to have tremendous stability, they're going to have tremendous institutions that lasted for hundreds and hundreds of years. Uh, you know, we think of Harvard and Yale as these venerable, venerable institutions that have been around for three, four hundred years. There were institutions in Sura and Pumpadisa that were around for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years, even like a thousand years or twelve hundred years. Like these enormous institutions of, uh, of Torah study that were in Babylon. That were, uh, you know, it was just, it was a wonderful place for, uh, for the Jewish people to be. And all this would not have happened if the Jewish people were sent in mass uh, to to Babylon. Uh, so this is an example from Israel, from Israel, from from uh, from Israel where they were uh, previously. Uh, this is an example, like the Talmud des- describes it as refuah kodum lamaka. That this is, you get the healing, you get the antidote before you get the illness. Uh, the antidote is okay. The Jewish people, their time in Israel, the illness is the Jewish people's time in Israel is, is over. However, before that actually happens, before the destruction actually is completed, we, we're going to prepare the groundwork for the recovery, for the antidote, for the healing, even before that. So this seemed to be a, a much more seamless transition. Uh, and, even, and even the destruction wasn't as bad as the destruction that's going to happen uh, 500 years later. It was still terrible, obviously, and it's a day that lives on an infamy, infamy you know, we're going to have in three weeks. We're going to, we're going to uh, commemorate uh, the ninth day of Av, the day, uh, the worst day in the Jewish calendar. It's the day uh, where the spies came back uh, from in biblical times, 
the Jewish people are crying, you know, we don't want to go into Israel. And this, that, that, because they were crying for no reason, God says, I'll make you require for a reason. And that's why all major disasters and catastrophes in, in Jewish history happened on that day. You know, even the liquidation of the Warsaw Ghetto in 1943 happened on, on Yom Kippur. We know that the uh, the in Spanish Inquisition was signed. Uh, no, I'm sorry, not Yom Kippur, on Tishba, sorry, mm-hmm. uh, 1943. Uh, the Spanish Inquisition of, of, of 1482 was signed on Tishba. Both temples are destroyed in, on, on Tishba. Uh, it's, 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 it's a terrible, terrible day where terrible things happen. Uh, that's when the temple is destroyed and the Jewish people are sent into exile. That's where we read about, you know, the famous psalm, you know, they're sitting on the rivers of Babylon, and they're all dejected, and like, how did this happen? How did this one, this once mighty and proud nation, you know, we've been in Israel for hundreds and hundreds of years, we had these great kings, and David, and Saul, and Solomon, and, and it just went, it spiraled, you know, it was the death spiral, so to speak. It just got worse, and, and we didn't, they didn't even notice, people didn't, didn't notice at the time, and the prophets, Jeremiah tells them, listen, you guys are crying now, but you weren't crying then, you weren't repenting then. Only post facto. Had you repented earlier, you know, had you had this lesson earlier, you wouldn't have had needed to have the lesson foisted upon you. So it's another interesting pattern that we see that when bad things happen, we remember God. When good things happen, no one says, oh, why does Hashem give me so much money? You know, that's not the question we ask. But like when you stub your toe, like why does God do this to me? So if, if you were God and you wanted to have a relationship with, with, you know, with, with, with a Jew, with your child, so to speak, what would you do? Well, first you try to give him lots of good, you know, and, and he doesn't think about you. you know, it's all about his brilliant business mind or his awesome luck or just how fantastic things are. You give him a little stub of the toe and suddenly, suddenly you're all part of his life. So if we don't want to have all these toe stubbings, then we do the connection beforehand. That's what Jeremiah told the Jewish people. You're crying now? Suddenly you remember God and you're, 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 you're evoking all this whole relationship with God and why did God do this to us? Oh, that's what should have happened earlier. I knew this, would, this wouldn't be necessary. And it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a, an incredible, incredible, it's also it's a, it's problematic, but it's an incredible idea that essentially we are bound to have a relationship with God. That's going to happen. Now it's our choice. How, how, how do we want to have this relationship? Do we want to, you know, in good times, remember God and thank God for everything? Every time you drink a glass of water, you thank God. Every time you eat food, you thank God. Every morning you say moda'ani, thank God, right? Uh, is that what we're going to do? Or are we going to wait till things are bad and then suddenly everyone immediately, like, uh, opens up the, the wellsprings of faith? That's what happens. That's what happens. And that's what happened to the Jewish people at that time. Um... Now, interestingly, just to contrast, um, in the 1880s, there were major immigrations to the, uh, emigrations to the United States from German and Russian Jews. And in the pre-war, I guess even uh, up to the 1940s, 1950s, the United States, it was very inhospitable for Jews. Mm-hmm. A lot of Jews came to the United States, and they were, you know, they were Jews, like all Jews in, in Europe, uh, at, at least at certain points uh, of, of Jewish history. And they were good Jews and observant Jews, and it meant to them, it meant a lot to them. But they got there, and there's no shuls, and there's no Jewish schools, and there's no Jewish food, there's no kosher food, there's no, uh, you know, um, structure in which they could maintain their observance. They had to work on Shabbat, which was a big deal because you know, you didn't show up and work on Shabbat, you were fired. 
Uh, and that kind of infrastructure is very inhospitable for, for Jewish practice. And what happened? Right? Enormous, thousands upon thousands of families, they just dropped their practice. Not because of any one event, not because they had some sort of theological renaissance or you know, they decided it was just because it was, there was nothing there. Like, there was no life for an observant Jew in the United States. It's, it's ter- terribly sad, but that's what, that's what w- would have happened in Babylon. Get to Babylon, and you're in a foreign place, and you have to, you know, you have to deal with the foreign rules, and that's what would have happened. And it's, the Jewish people are, are too important to have that happen. So God intervenes. He sends 10,000 of the best and brightest to Babylon. They establish uh, a, a, a mini-Jewish vibrant community, which grows to a larger uh, vibrant Jewish community. Now, during this time, uh, in the intercession, there's going to be the Purim story. So during these 70 years between the destruction of the first temple and the beginning of the process of rebuilding the second temple, it's only 70 years, which doesn't seem like a, like a lot of time. But in the interim, we see a transition from the Babylonian Empire to the Persian Empire, and that's where we have the whole episode of, or the whole story of, of Purim. And uh, that entire story we're all well, very well familiar with, but that's where it happens. That doesn't happen in Israel. Uh, so let's stick to what happens in Israel. So when do the Jewish people come back to Israel? Uh, they come back with Ezra. Ezra the scribe. Ezra the scribe is one of the pivotal characters in, in Jewish history. Uh, now, because in, in Jewish history, look at uh, certain time shifts, sh- certain shifts uh, in, in, in the nature of, of the nation, that, and every time there's a major shift, uh, there's a major upheaval, if you will, of Jewish life and Jewish uh, structure. There's always a danger of things going wrong. Uh, for example, if the um, Ezra, look at Ezra uh, right now as an example, but Ezra, uh, he is going to um, be the pivotal leader at the time where the very last of the prophets are going to disappear. Right? So he was a prophet. There were still a few other prophets afterwards, but it was waning now, a prophet is a tremendous asset for a nation to have. When you have a prophet, you have a, a, a direct link with God. And when there's a prophet around, it's very hard for there to be offshoot religions or different groups or uh, you know, any schisms amongst the people. It's very hard to have sectarianism when you have a prophet, because a prophet is undisputed. And it's very hard to have disagreements upon halacha, because you go to the prophet. If prophecy ends, on one hand, well, now all the doors of, of heresy are opened. So what's going to keep the nation together? What's going to be the leader? Who's going to be the leader? So there's going to be a transition from the prophet being the leader to the Sanhedrin, which is the, the collection of all the greatest uh, Jewish leaders. They're going to be the, the focal point of, of Jewish leadership. But there's going to be uh, also another reality that's going to emerge is the fact that now you have Still people living in Babylon. Ezra comes back to Israel. He comes back with 42,000 people. The vast majority, overwhelming majority, million, a million Jews still stay in Babylon. So now you suddenly have, for the first time in all of, of Jewish history, you're going to have Jewish communities that are scattered. Some of them, some Jews live in Babylon. Some Jews live in Israel. We're going to have a temple. We're going to rebuild the temple eventually in Israel. But there are Jews that are out, outside of Israel living in Babylon. Another great challenge. So we have the challenge, number one, of a changing leadership. Number two, loss of of prophecy number three uh, different Jewish communities and who knows how that's going to happen uh, and uh, number four in in the the temple itself 
it was lacking. The first temple and second temple were very different. The first temple had all the vessels that are described in the Torah. The second temple was missing some of them, like the Ark of the Covenant, um, that we're all familiar with, but that was not in the second temple. Um, additionally, the miracles that were ever present in the first temple uh, weren't there. Uh, like, uh, the, like the Kohen Gadol would have the Ur of Atumim. He would have this, the breastplate, and then it would light up to answer questions. So like that, like all those things, all these great miracles that were ever present and you know, just there at all times in the first temple were gone in the second temple. There's going to be, over the time period of the second temple, there's going to be corruption in the temple itself. Like things that were unheard of, things that were anathema in the first temple were okay, where the door was opened. All these little things converge on Ezra. And he's going to be the one who's going to establish what's known as the men of the great assembly. This great assembly. Or the Anche Knesset Hagdola, which is a temporary expansion of the Sanhedrin, and uh, from seventy-one members to one hundred and twenty members. And today's in Israel, the Parliament in Israel is called the Knesset, as one hundred twenty members as modeled after the Knesset, the the great the the the, the Knesset Gdola, which means the Great Assembly of of Ezra, and they are going to formalize the religion for a post prophecy era. And they're going to uh, enact, like, what do you do if you're in Babylon and you're so distant from the temple? Well, that was a new reality. You don't have a temple, the tabernacle. Well, what do you do then? And how do you make sure that the people living in Babylon don't forget Israel, don't, don't, you know, don't forget Jerusalem, don't forget the temple? How do you keep cohesiveness and uniformity in practice when the Jewish people are scattered? All those questions were, uh, were dealt with, and they formalized that religion. The prayer that we have today is a prayer that was formalized by, the, by Ezra. A lot of different areas that they that they codified and organized. They codified the, the Bible, right? The twenty-four words of the Jewish Bible. They, who who made that canon? Who decided what's in, what's out? Ezra, Ezra, and the, and, at the helm of the men of the Great Assembly. Is Billy Yeah, uh, you said when the Jews were kicked out of Israel and went to uh, Babylon, Babylon, but there were still Jews back in Israel. Well, so you had two locations of Jews. Well, at that, that for time. ten years, for those for ten, ten years. years. Yeah, it's true, but I'm saying, but that wasn't a long-term thing. It was, it was, it was, yeah. it was chaos. Yeah. The dust hadn't settled yet on, on that episode. Okay. Yeah, I mean, yeah, you, so you might have had have someone two, before yeah. had one on vacation to yeah. the Bahamas. That doesn't mean that there's like uh, permanent uh, settlements of yeah. Jews. Yeah, okay. that's what I meant. Yes. Okay. So at, the, at that time, did they write the two Talmuds? Talmuds are much, much, much later. Much later. We'll get to the Talmuds hopefully today. I mean, we're not doing a part three, guys. So we're doing this. <laughs> uh, we're not doing a part three. Okay, so so um, let's let's produce. So that that that's why Ezra is such a central leader. Uh, obviously, I gave an entire class on on men of the great assembly and Ezra and what their roles were and all the different decisions that they made. If you want to listen to it, go to rebel.com and type Ezra or great assembly into the search bar. You'll find it. Uh, very, very fascinating time period. And that's why, like we said, Ezra is one of the great heroes in all of, uh, all of, uh, of, Jew- of Jewish history. We put the Rambam. The Rambam also uh, is a pivotal character. Rabbi Judah the Prince, he also oversees a, tr- uh, a, a transition. Uh, Ravina Ravashi, the, uh, the, uh, the codifiers of, 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 the, uh, of the Talmud, uh, they make uh, transformative changes uh, that with tremendous visionary foresight that kind of helped us continue and thrive and flourish uh, as a nation. 
so very important individual and very, very important uh, time period. Now, uh, we move on from the Persians as the great uh, dominant nation, and we meet the Greeks. We know that they, during the, I think it's called the Peloponnesian Wars, uh, that, uh, that uh, Alexander the Great has with the Persians, they're fighting all the time, and eventually he captures everything. He captures everything as far east as India. He captures Israel, he captures everything. Everything from Israel all the way to India. The entire Near East is, is, is one man, he's incredible. Never lost a battle, uh, Alexander, and he, he's dead at the age of 32 as well. So he's, he's a very young. Um, and he, Alexander, by the way, is a Jewish name. Everyone knows, uh, if you ever meet a Jewish name, it's why, why is Alexander a Jewish name? Because Alexander was captured Israel, but captured it without any bloodshed. Uh, and he actually he had a dream. He used to have dreams about the great Rabbi Shimon, Rabbi Shimon Atzadik, and he when he met who was the Kohen Gadol at the time. And when he went to Israel, he actually met him and he got off his horse and he bowed down to him. And it was it was you know the the Jews had a really nice relationship with Alexander, and therefore they said from now on, for the next year, every Jewish boy that's born. It's going to be called Alexander, and until today, there are send like Alexander or Sender is a Jewish, is a Jewish name. Uh, either way, when Alexander dies, his kingdom is divvied up. Uh, why? Because it was such an enormous, enormous empire that no one man, no one personality could, you know, control it all. So eventually, it gets split up to three different, uh, three different uh, sections. Uh, there's going to be the Ptolemy Kingdom or Empire of of Egypt. There's going to be the Assyrian, Greek, Ptolemy Greeks, Assyrian Greeks, uh, and uh, and the Mas- Ma- Macedonian Greeks, uh, Greek proper. Now, we know when the Greeks captured, when they conquered, they didn't just conquer land. It wasn't just about that. The idea of Greek culture, mm-hmm. Greek way of thinking, the Greek philosophy was part and parcel of what it means to be captured by the Greeks. So this created. This is an example where it created. The, the, you know, there there wasn't a, there wasn't the prophet, uh, and the you know the new uh, yeah, the 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 the, uh, uh, the the appeal of of the Greeks was overwhelming, and a lot of Jews that were captured were under Greek control. They became what's called as Hellenized. You know, they became influenced by it. Uh, so that created an enormous internal conflict amongst the people. You, know, you have Jews now that are Jews, but they have, you know, with their little interest. You know, they became influenced. They're, they're Hellenized. They want to go to the gymnasium, and they want to, you know, spend time uh, with Greek philosophy. You know, the whole idea of, of Greek philosophy, there's no room for God in Greek philosophy. You know, that was a major challenge. But that's a challenge that can only emerge in a society, in a Jewish society, where there's no prophets. If there's any prophets, well, that, then and any, any such ideological schism get, get, get stamped out. So there's going to be hundreds of years where there's Hellenized Jews and regular Jews and more like traditional observant Jews, and they're going to have conflict because the, the Hellenized Jews will want to bring the Gentiles in. Let's open up stadiums everywhere and let's go around butt naked like the Greeks do, of course, and the whole idea of humanism and and Greek art and all that philosophy. Like they want to introduce them. Those things are anathema to the Jewish people. Uh, so that became. Like from then on, we're going to meet the Hellenized Jews, and we're going to meet the Sadducees. Like I don't know if we mentioned them last time, but the Sadducees are a group that emerges at, around the same time, uh, where these are Jews who decide that they don't want to believe in the Oral Torah uh, because they say, "Well, Oral Torah was made up by the rabbis." Now, the only the only way they can do that if there's no there's, there's no prophets around. When there's prophets around, you know, a prophet is someone who predicts what's going to happen tomorrow. 
and is always right. No one can argue with the prophet. You know, it's clear to everyone that he has a direct link with God. Uh, so when the prophets disappear, suddenly everyone who everyone who wants to say, oh, this part's made up of the rabbi, this part's not true, they, it's free, it's free game. So there's a massive group called the Sadducees now. We're gonna they're gonna emerge and they're gonna be a thorn in the side of, of the rabbis, but the the mainstream Jews are gonna be influenced now. We have different disagreeing groups and they're all in Israel. And the Sadducees, a lot of them were priests, and a lot of them were were, were running the temple. And it was a disaster because you go to the temple and you, your Cohen, who's in charge of overseeing your sacrifice, you don't know if he's doing the right thing. You don't know what he's doing. You don't know what he's tampering with. Like, that's a tremendous problem. You have a high priest that says, I'm, I'm going to do things my way. I don't want to do it the traditional way. So you see this, 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 this tension that's going to exist now during this time. Uh, either way, uh, what is happening to the Jewish people uh, you know, with regards to the relationship with the other nations. So we have, like we said, we have the, the Seleucid or uh, the Syrian Greeks, the Ptolemy, the Egyptian Greeks, and the Macedonian Greeks, and the Jewish people are originally going to be under the Ptolemies. Uh, so um, Al-Danadai is, I think, in three, 323 before the Common Era. Uh, eventually, the Ptolemies are in control for the next 120 years over Israel. Because, you know, if you actually look at the map, you know, Assyria and, and, and Egypt... What's sandwiched right between them? Israel. Mm-hmm. So there's any time that they're warring, right, we're right in the center of it all. So originally we're under the Ptolemies. Uh, eventually, uh, in 198 before the Common Era, we become under the Assyrians. And they're the ones who are going to introduce, let's say, we're going to meet Antiochus III. He's the one who's going to capture Israel. Antiochus IV is his son who's going to enact the laws against Jewish practice. And it's it's kind of, coming at the Jewish people from all angles because they have internally, they have some Jews that are Hellenized, some Jews that are Sadducees that, you know, they're still observant, but, you know, not, not super traditional. That's the challenge from within against religion. And then you have a challenge from without. You have the, the, uh, the foreign rulers who's now in control of the land. You know, they're the new boss in town. And they say, hey, if you observe Shabbat or observe the laws of Nida or you circumcise your kid or you study Torah, we're going to execute you. And they start executing people left, right, and center, you know? Pretty crazy. And then you have, and, but they have their comrades, so to speak, in the Hellenized Jews, who say, yeah, we're Jews, but we're, we're Greeks. You know, we don't observe any of this nonsense. Uh, that's what they said. Uh, now, in parallel to that, we're all still in Babylonia. Yeah, so, so, the, so what's so interesting at that time, happening in Israel. what's interesting at that time is that the Babylonian Jewry was flourishing. Very interesting because we're going to focus true. obviously on on what happens in Israel. Yeah. But throughout this time, there's going to be a vibrant and flourishing Jewish community in Babylon. And, and they remain it. true. They, they remain true. Oh, to yes. Judaism. You don't have all these. Uh, you don't have that. You don't have that exactly. And it seems like Jerusalem and Israel; those are usually hot, hot, uh, hot beds of of. On one hand, you have fanaticism. On the other hand, you have uh, you know messianism. Something called like the Jerusalem syndrome. People go to Jerusalem, but they decide, well, I'm Messiah. You know, it happens all the time. So you see, like these different groups that that emerge uh, in Israel. Like people say, you know, and at the time there were other groups like the Essenes. Yeah. Uh, the Essenes were a group of Jews who also made their own little cult. But to them, it wasn't about dropping observance; it was about adding more observance. Yeah. So they'll say, oh, let's be abstinent. You know, let's be celibate. Why don't we try that form of Judaism? You know, which is and Judaism says, listen, don't add, don't subtract. 
Don't try to. Don't think that you'll be more religious by saying there's more. Thing. You add more. Thing. That that's also antithetical to Torah. Torah is Torah. Don't add, don't subtract. Don't say oh, I'll be even more religious than the rabbi. I'll, I'll do things that the Torah says not to do. Uh, and they're also gone. All these groups are gone, by the way. We'll talk about how they disappear. But either way, all these things are going to uh, uh, be ever present in the Second Temple uh, period. Uh, so. Uh, Things were fairly good under the Ptolemies, on uh, Ptolemy Greeks. In 198, we said the Seleucid or Assyrian Greeks, their, their control of Israel. Uh, things are okay at the beginning, and then Antiochus IV, he starts these, um, he starts these, uh, this campaign of, of, of religious extermination, to, to, to get rid of the religion. Not to get rid of the people, not, not to kill them, just to, to, to pervert their religion. And of course, we know the Hasmoneans, they uh, began a rebellion, and they were successful over a very long period of time of actually gaining autonomy over Israel. They achieved sovereignty from the Ptolemies, from the Seleucids over Israel. We know the whole story and the menorah and the oil and, 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 and Matisyahu and Judah and all that story, the Maccabees, but eventually uh, they're going to uh, achieve sovereignty over Israel. And they're going to, uh, the Jewish people are going to self-govern for 100 years, 99 to be precise. From the year, about the year 166 to the year 67 before the Common Era. Uh, now this period, the Hasmonean period, the Hasmonean dynasty is going to start off very positively. Like we said, Matthias, Matthias and his five sons, and these great, they're all Kohanes. Think of, remember that point for a second, they're all Kohanes. And they're all these mighty warriors and great Torah scholars and great leaders and they fight and they don't care and they, 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 they're successful and the small uh, group uh, is able to outbattle the big group and the, 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 the pure beat the impure and the tzaddik can beat the rishayim and it's all fantastic. Uh, we know Judah dies in, in battle. All the details of the battle, very interesting. Um, made a video about it if you want to watch it. But the, all the details of the battle, it's only eight minutes, the entire story. I did it so fast, it spoke faster than I could even imagine. Uh, and uh, regardless, at, at the end, uh, Shimon, one of the brothers, Shimon was the one that's left, and he was the one who became the first Nasi, the first president over this new sovereign Israel. Now, it's very important that he didn't name himself king. Why did he not name himself king? If you remember last week we mentioned to be a legitimate king over the land of Israel, you have to be a direct descendant of David via Solomon. Therefore, he was a Cohen. Cohen, by definition, is not a direct descendant of David. So he said, I'll be the president. You know? Now, the problem is that this uh, minor sensitivity was lost upon his kids. So he was the president. His kid says, you know what, screw it. I'm, I'm king. <laughs> and... Over the course of this gen- of of these uh, of this Hasmonean dynasty, we're going to meet Hasmonean kings who are Sadducees. That's a pretty big deal. Like you have the king, who's also a coin. He's not supposed to be a king. Sometimes you have kings who are coin gadols and kings. What's the deal with that? And they're in conflict with the majority of the mainstream populace. Yeah, the, the, like we said, the Kohen, the elite, are more likely to be Sadducees, but the vast majority of, 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 the, of the, you know, the lay people, they're all traditional observant Jews, the way it always was. And this is tremendous conflict, obviously. And we mentioned last week what happened, like with Alexander Yanai. You know, you, you, it's, it's like you read the story, I'm skipping a lot of details, of course, but like you meet like a Kohen Gadol whose name is Jason. 
doesn't sound like a real like a name for a high priest, right? It doesn't sound like a Jewish name. Jason, you know, Aristobulus. Is that like a name for a nice Jewish boy? I don't know, man. You know, but Alexander Yanai, he's the king and he's the high priest and he's taunting the nation and doing things which are against tradition on the holidays of Sukkot. They all start throwing their escorts at him. We mentioned this last week, you know, but that's a great illustration of what happens when you have this internal conflict, especially between the leadership and the populace. Uh, either way, the epilogue to this dynasty is that uh, the one bright spot at the end of this ep- was was the Queen Shlomtzion. Uh, she was she was a queen actually. Uh, either way, her you know she was more uh, a, whole, a wholesome leader. Uh, but her two sons are uh, Hierarchinus and Aristobulus. They're fighting over the uh, over the uh, over the. Um, Who's going to be the king, and what do they decide to do? Let's invite the Romans. Let them mediate. That was their idea at the time. Oh, so actually, they invited Pompey, yeah. who, who was, you know, it's obviously the beginning of, of the great Roman Empire. But Pompey is invited into Israel. Why don't you come and, and mediate our dispute? And he says, okay, I'll come in. And once the Romans come in, yeah. they ain't leaving. So they didn't actually capture Israel in battle. They just settled down. They were invited in. Uh, so that was that marks the end of 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 Jewish sovereignty over Israel, at least until till, till recent times. Well, with the minor exception of Bar Kokhba's revolt in the year one thirty two mm-hmm. to one thirty five, those three years, uh, and we know that once the Romans came in, well, they have their way of doing things, their way of organizing things, their way of setting up local leadership, uh, as well as having proxy leaderships and pro- proctors and proconsuls and they, they, it was very organized, you know, it was very structured. And they said, "Listen, you know, you're now with Roman subjects, and we don't care if you guys observe the Torah. At least not at that point. That's going to change. You do whatever you want. You have a temple. Just pay taxes and don't 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 revolt and don't rebel against us. And we'll install someone who's like a hybrid Jewish but a Roman." Who's going to be in charge? And if everything's good, everything's cool. We're okay. And that's what happened. You have about a hundred years before the temple is destroyed, where things are okay. The Romans aren't meddling too much. Uh, but who's the leader of the people? You have the leader of the people could be a fellow by the name of Herod. Yeah. You know, Herod. He, he's in a sense of those Samaritans that we mentioned last time. It's not even clear that he's Jewish. You know, but he's someone who grew up in Rome and he's friendly with 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 Roman. He's a nobleman. And but he's also kind of quasi Jewish. We don't know his status, and he comes in and he says, "Okay, I'm in charge now, and I'm gonna do fantastic things like build, like refurbish the temple, or build these massive cities and great builder." That Herod is this great builder on one hand who refurbishes everything, builds all these Caesareas. Every city they build is called Caesarea. Uh, just builds and builds and builds, builds Masada, the great fortress of Masada. Uh, and on one hand, he's you know he's great because he refurbishes the temple. On the other hand, he is the one who uh, is terribly paranoid and executes his own family members and kills a thousand rabbis and punctures out their eyes and is a terrible, terrible you know demon and a villain you know. And he, he you know it's just what do you do with it you know? And he executes people left, right, and center. And he was one who executed the last members of the Hasmonean dynasty. Means he's worried. He wants to secure his position, so he says, "Oh, the royalty that exists with the uh, uh, with the um, with the Well, what if they want to come back into power? You know, let's execute them." In fact, he married a Hasmonean, and then he executed her. Yeah. 
it's just just a terrible, terrible uh, individual. But that's the kind of leaders that we have. So there's sometimes we don't have leaders. We do have leaders. We have uh, people like uh, Flores, who's going to be in charge, but he's not actually. But he's going to uh, he's going to kind of be uh, someone who's going to try to goad the people into rebelling. Really, really bad. Like we see, all these different forces are coming together. Uh, like I said, from internally and externally, we're going to have. Um, like we said, there's the Sadducees, there's the Essenes. We're going to meet these other new groups called like the Sicarium. Uh, there's the Beryonim. Uh, there's um, what, what's called the Pharisees, which is just the rest of the the, the main just people, just the regular standard Jews. We still have the Hellenized Jews. We have the people that are more in, into Greek culture, more into Roman culture. But all this creates such a mess on so much internal fighting on one hand and pressure from without that things are going to get really bad. Things are deteriorate just progressively, not all at once, of course not. But over time, things just get bad to worse. Uh, we know in the year 30, even the temple's still around and it was refurbished and it's all beautiful, but the Sanhedrin, which is the, the leadership of the people, they leave the temple. And why would they voluntarily decide to leave the temple? Why would they leave the temple in the year 30? And the answer is because uh, when the Sanhedrin is in session in the temple, only then can all Jewish courts uh, mete out capital punishment. But we know that Jewish courts ought not to mete out capital punishment very often. Mm-hmm. So in order to force Jewish courts across the globe to stop uh, uh, meeting out capital punishment, they decided to voluntarily leave Jerusalem. Uh, once they leave Jerusalem, then the 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 courts anywhere cannot uh, cannot uh, meet out capital punishment. Now, why is that? Because the Jewish system of law and the adjudication of that law is designed for a nation. Sorry, let me take that back. Not the laws, but the the actual adjudication of that laws is only designed when these things are very rare. When things deteriorate and there's crime everywhere and there's murders everywhere and things are really bad, well, that's not the Jewish court's um, job to to oversee it. So we see spiritual voids, we see infighting, and all that uh, eventually brought about in the year 66 to the Great Revolt, the first of many revolts that the Jewish people are going to stage against the Romans. Uh, and at beginning, it's successful, uh, but towards the end, the Romans come back and they systematically begin eliminating stuff from the north, uh, the leadership of Vespasian, and they start systematically going from the north down south, isolating towns, uh, they would isolate a town, they would have a slave siege to the town, uh, they would just choke it, anyone who comes out is executed and, and crucified, really bad, and once they break through, they go slaughter everyone, it's disastrous, man, woman, child, doesn't matter, um, and then when they would leave, they would burn everything down, burn all provisions, kill everyone, put salt to the ground so nothing grows, and just leave decimation. You know, the Romans were okay unless you mess with them. Once you mess with them, they would just systematically eliminate you. And they made their way slowly over four years from the north all the way down till they isolate Jerusalem. And there's going to be a protracted siege on Jerusalem. Remember, Jerusalem, as I mentioned last time, uh, Jerusalem is designed, well, not designed, but it's, 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 it's primed for withstanding um, a siege, right? There's natural defenses. It's, 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 they always have these massive walls. There's natural defenses. Uh, it has a very good water supply. It's self-sustaining uh, in, in, in civilization, essentially. Uh, all f- uh, three out of four sides are, 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 are surrounded by valleys. 
you know, so it's very hard to mount a siege uh, surrounding Jerusalem. Uh, either way, uh, we find in the Talmud some great episodes that kind of illustrate, um, kind of window into what was going on at the time. You have so many different groups fighting for a say in the matter. You have the, the majority of the Jews are still with the Pharisees, with the rabbis, but then you have those ones who say, let's go fight them, let's, let's break through the siege, and let's go, let, you know, let's go, uh, let's, let, let, let's stand up to the Romans, we could beat them up, we've done it before, we'll do it again, we're not scared of anyone. You have those, uh, you had like a, like a thuggy, you know, like a, like a organized crime unit amongst the Jewish people, like they were called the Sicarii, like I mentioned. Sicari is the name of a dagger. They would like assassinate their opponents with daggers. Like that's not that's not that very Jewish, you know. And you have obviously the Sadducees, even though their influence is waning. You have the early Judeo Christians, even though that's really not a thing uh, quite yet. It's going to be a little bigger uh, several decades later. Uh, either way, we find the narrative of the Talmud that there was um, a storage houses of of grain that could have subsisted the people for twenty one years. Jerusalem could have had enough resources to last for 21 years. They had wood that would have lasted also for 20 years. And then the people that decided, let's go fight them, they say, hey, you know, the Jewish people, they're, they're very happy. You know, they're self-sustaining. Uh, it's, the walls are impenetrable. And they're happy like this. We want to fight the Romans. How do we fight to get to fight the Romans? You know how we do that? Let's burn down the supplies. So they went and they burned down all the supplies. So all the grain's gone, all the wood's gone, and then there's starvation. You know, when you read about what the Torah says about the terrible things that happened to Jewish people, and it says that there's mothers eating their kids, yeah. those terrible imagery, well, that actually happened. You know, and it's such a terrible disaster. Because it was just mass starvation. That's what it was like. You know, um, just unimaginable, uh, just tragedy that's happening. Uh, and eventually, on the 17th day of Tammuz, which is, by the way, a fast day, uh, since it was enacted as a fast day, uh, which and it's actually this upcoming Sunday, uh, seventh day of Tammuz, the walls were breached. Eventually, the Romans they you know they got through. People are you know, obviously emaciated; they can't even fight. Uh, every day, between three and five hundred people try to sneak out to try to find food, and they capture the crucified, which is a, a terrible, terrible way to die. Because uh, it's a slow process; it takes you know it takes days and days, and you die basically of blood loss and. You start hallucinating. You know, it's terrible. Uh, and eventually they breach the walls and a slaughter of epic proportions ensues. Uh, so there's three weeks, and these are the three weeks that we sell, that we uh, we commemorate during the three weeks uh, between the breaching of the wall to actually the destroying of the temple, the, the, the ultimate of destruction of the, you know, the great Jewish community that was, uh, is the destruction of the temple. Which is the the heart of the Jewish nation, as you know, as we all know. Uh, that's three weeks, and those three weeks are weeks that we commemorate with mourning, even till today, because this is the downfall, or you know, one of the great downfalls of, of our nation. And it's a, it's a terrible, terrible disaster. Uh, we know just the descriptions, even from secular sources, not just the Roman sources. We know that uh, uh, Josephus <coughs> he documents this with great detail. Mm-hmm. He tells about all the politics and all the individuals and everyone. Uh, that 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 uh, that is is a player uh, in in these uh, on the in this uh, in this story, uh, but he also details the slaughtering. It's it's a disaster, you know. And obviously, in the ninth day of Av, the temple is finally lit lit aflame, and he describes how some Jews decide to jump at the fire, to die die with the temple, but the Jews are fighting valiantly. But eventually, it's it's destroyed, and there's nothing left. You know, 
It's just so terrible, so unimaginable. Uh, Jerusalem is destroyed and uh, everything is raided. Jerusalem sacked, and at this time, it's not. It's no longer uh, Vespasian. Vespasian will begin the uh, the assault on Judah. He is now installed as the emperor of Rome. His son Titus is the one who finishes the job. So I think in the year sixty nine was when they uh, they changed uh, when he gave it over to uh, Titus and he went he went to Rome. Uh, and it's just a disaster, you know. It's so bad that in uh, in the in I don't remember who writes this. I think I think it was Deo Cassius who writes that that the the slave market was so flooded with Jews that the price of a slave dropped to the price of a horse. Mm-hmm. You know, so whoever's left alive is just marched to Rome, you know, as a, as a slave. You know, and if you were there at that time and you were trying to prognosticate what's going to be the Jewish people, you say, well, it's over. You know, it's, it was good while it lasted. But it's over. That's what anyone would say. Uh, and we know that we're very resilient. And we rebuild very fast. And I, I think today, you know, I heard recently that the Jewish people right now are, are at population levels of pre-Holocaust. It's unimaginable. You know, if you were to look at what was left of the Jewish people, you know, it's a, in America there was very, very minimal uh, Jewish framework. And it was all in Europe. And then what do you have left in Europe? You have some, some, some just emaciated prisoners in DP camps. That's what was left. It was, it was over. Mm-hmm. And look at where we are today. You know, the Jewish people came and rebuilt. You know, my highest grandmother just passed away uh, two weeks ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, and she was liberated from Bergen-Belsen mm-hmm. uh, in, in 1945. And two <coughs> days after the war, she was liberated with her sister, but her sister uh, got sick and she died two days after the war. It's terrible. You know, she died in her arms. Can you imagine? And she contracted uh, 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 TB. Uh, tuberculosis, and but she made her way to Canada, and she, with her husband, also was a survivor of the camps, and they built a family. And, you know, that's that's what my wife and my kids are. You know, it's, we built, we rebuilt it. You know, it's it's only sixty seven years ago, but this, you know, we we rebuilt from the ashes, and that's what we do. That's what we did, they, they, they did after after the temples destroyed. Do you think if there wasn't a parallel with Babylon, it would have been destroyed? What do you mean, the Jewish people? Well, Jewish yeah. people are destined to always. Be around. The Torah foretells it. We will be an eternal nation. It's not always going to be fun. It's not always going to be peach and cream. It's not always going to be pretty. We will survive and we always rebuild it again and again. There's so many disasters that happened to the, to the people even since then. Obviously, right. this is this is this is you know this is is terrible. It's unimaginable what actually happened. And, and there's, there's there's more. There's the epilogue. Right? Masada we know near 73. That was the final the final death death blow. Death. Yeah. Uh, but what happened to Beit in 136 was even worse. But we constantly rebuild. That's that's the hallmark of of, of of the Jewish nation. But why does it happen? It happened because we brought it onto ourselves. And the Torah even tells us, you 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 choose. You know, do you want everything? You can have everything. You to be in Israel. You can have material success and prosperity and health and happiness. And you can have spiritual success and and happiness. And you can have it all. You start fighting with each other. You start neglecting God. You start inventing these other new offshoots of your religion. You start, you know, you start having uh, uh, ideological schisms. This is what's going to happen. And you know what happened? What was the grand result of that? Where are the Sadducees? Sadducees disappeared. Right? Where are the Essenes? They're gone. Uh, where's these Beryonim and Sitkarim? All these different groups, they're gone. Right? All you have left is what we started off with. You know, we bring these things onto ourselves via our decisions. It's pretty, pretty remarkable. The Torah spells it out. It's not like it should be a surprise to anyone. 
You know, that's what it says. We talked about it. Israel says, I will, the verse we mentioned last week, that Israel says, I will vomit the Jewish people out of Israel if they, if they behave uh, like the Gentiles. I'll vomit them out. And they did. Multiple times, the Jewish people were vomited out. It was a disaster. It's unimaginable. But the lesson is very, very powerful for us. Either way, um, by the time you know, we begin the second century of the Common Era, uh, 110, 115, there is going to be a tremendous effort to rebuild. Um, in the 70s, 70s, not, not the 1970s, but in the 70s and 80s and 90s, there's going to be titanic efforts to rebuild the Jewish people, um, especially under the leadership of the Sanhedrin, it's now in Yavne. They, Herculean efforts are made to rebuild the people. And by the time 50, 60 years later, come, uh, later the Jewish people are back. They're at full strength. Which is just remarkable. Living where? Oh well, like we said, there's there's still a Jewish community in in, in Israel, uh, in Jerusalem even, uh, but even northern Israel at the time was was much more uh, of a center of Jewish life. Of course, the Babylon has been un- uninterrupted almost uh, to, uh, at the time. Uh, either way, we're going to meet a new uh, Roman emperor who's going to do things that are, uh, you know, maybe the worst villain outside of of Haman and. Pharaoh and Hitler and I guess Ferdinand and you know Antiochus. If you were to make a, I don't know what you would call a Mount Rushmore or the opposite of Mount Rushmore uh, <laughs> of, of Jewish of villains, you need to follow the name of Hadrian. Now Hadrian assumes emperorship in the year 117, and he uh, eventually doesn't not not immediately, but he decides to once again try to systematically dismantle Jewish people. And he does a lot of things that are very similar to Antiochus. Uh, he makes restrictions against public Torah study. Uh, he makes restrictions against circumcision as well, which is always a uh, it's always a, um, a lightning rod of 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 you know disdain from the Gentiles. Uh, and he says, like he used to teach Torah publicly, we'll execute you. You know, so we know that Rabbi Kiva was executed because he taught story public, Torah, Torah publicly. He, and how was he executed in a terrible way? It is skin flayed off of him. It's unimaginable. That was under Hadrian. That's under Hadrian, that's right. Um, that was actually after the, the, the Bar Kokhba revolt. But that's, that's an example. Like, you know, and he's, for example, he said one of the things that he did, one of the things that he banned was uh, a con, um, a conf- conferring of smicha. Now to us, that doesn't mean anything. What does it even mean? What does smicha mean? So smicha means rabbinic ordination. Mm-hmm. But the smicha that existed at that time was an uninterrupted smicha from Moses to his students, to his student, to his student, to you. If you had smicha, it means you received from someone, received from someone, received from someone, received from Moses. And to be as part of the you had to have smicha. So Hadrian figured, if I want to dismantle the Jewish, the, the Jewish religion, I'll dismantle the religion. The leadership, how to do that? Well, by, by, by saying you, can't, you cannot give smicha. And once you cannot give smicha, well, then you can have anyone be part of the Sanhedrin. So he says, if someone gives smicha, I'm going to kill the guy who gives smicha. I'm going to kill the guy who receives smicha. And I'm going to exterminate the entire town in which the smicha was conferred. That's what he says. So this great Jewish hero, Rabbi Yehuda ben Baba, he takes five students, and he goes exactly equidistant between two cities, and stealthily gives them smicha. And then, they were, the Romans were following them, and he tells his people, run away! They're after us. Those five students managed to escape, but they take the rabbi and they puncture him. 
the Talmud says, with 300 spears. Now, is an exact number? We don't know. But they, it says they make, so they puncture him like a, like a sieve, like a sifter. They just puncture holes in him. Terrible. Like that, that's what happened under Hadrian. And those traditions were so bad that obviously Jewish people said, die, enough. And there was a revolt. And this is the, one of the greatest revolts in all of Roman history, Roman Empire history. That's the Bar Kokhba revolt. Uh, uh, obviously, this is an entire like we're going through these things really quickly. But Bar Kokhba is the one who leads the rebellion that is, is successful, at least temporarily, to get rid of Romans from Israel. Get rid of them; they're gone. Uh, and he becomes the king, King Bar Kokhba. Everything's great. Rabbi Tiva is so excited. He says, "This guy's Messiah." Eventually, things go south, and Hadrian regroups, and they quelch the rebellion. Uh, and it's really, really, really bad. Um, if you want to read about what happened in Betar, the extermination of Betar. By the way, what day of the year did that happen? In 136? The 9th of Av. Uh, Betar was the last stronghold of the rebellion, and when they finally succeeded in uh, overcoming, they had a slaughter of, of unimagined um, proportions. Like the Jewish sources and the uh, um, the uh, uh, Roman sources both pegged the number at hundreds of thousands of people. And Talmud says there was so much blood everywhere that the, that the Gentile farmers didn't need to fertilize their fields for seven years. Like that, that, that's, that's what it says. And, you know, it says uh, like a number like 900,000 people were slaughtered. Just unimaginable. Uh, but either way, and, 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 the, and the systematic... Uh, um, dismantling of the religion was attempted, but thankfully, thank God, the grace of God, uh, Hadrian died and uh, his, uh, his, uh, his attacks went with him. Uh, and either way, um, this became clear to everyone who was there at the time that this, you know, this is an untenable situation. Like, things are just getting so bad and so worse, and you thought it was better, but it got worse. Uh, and at risk was the fact that that if things continue, you can't teach Torah publicly, you can't become a rabbi, you can't have relations, right? If those things continue, there's going to be the risk that something even worse than all this is going to happen, That's the, and that is that the Jewish people are going to forget the Torah. That the oral tra- tradition of, of rabbi to student, all the way it's been since Moses, the great yeshivas where these things, where, where these uh, teachings happened, uh, those are going to be dismantled, and then it's all all is lost. Uh, and this is once again another time where there's a, a pivotal point in, in 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 history, where one man essentially uh, makes decisions that are so visionary at the time, uh, but essentially saves the Jewish people. Just like Ezra at his time, Rabbi Judah the Prince is the one who decides to codify the Mishnah. Now, the Mishnah is a writing down of the Oral Torah. We have the Mishnah today. I have an entire set of Mishnah in my house. Uh, every Talmud, the Talmud is based upon the Mishnah. But that decision of writing down all of Jewish law, taking a thousand rabbis and spending 20 years of editing the Mishnah, that is a decision that now we could see made Torah and thus Judaism transportable. Thus, in exile, when there's going to be a scattering, and it wasn't going to leave Israel and then the Sanhedrin is going to be disbanded, and there's going to be no no central leadership, and there's going to be people that are going to be on their own, right? Smaller communities, all isolated. What's going to keep Jewish Jewish Jewish? What's going to keep Jewish practice alive? The Mishnah, the writing down of everything of Jewish law, everything. 
right? An enormous undertaking, 63 books, think about that, of codifying every single word of, of Jewish law. A tremendous, tremendous, is Rabbi Judah the Prince, uh, or Rabbi Yehuda Hanasi, or just Rabbi Yehuda. In, in Jewish writings, he's oftentimes just called rabbi. Mm-hmm. You say, rabbi? Well, which rabbi? Yeah, the rabbi he's rabbi. the rabbi, because his position as a leader of the Jewish people is unmatched by anyone, and he's therefore, he's just called rabbi, because he's just the rabbi of, of who? Of everyone. It's remarkable. Um, that happens at the end of the second century of the Common Era, um, but either way, the Jewish people are already not living in, uh, in, in Jerusalem. Jerusalem is, is, is bereft of Jews. Uh, Hadrian, by the way, when he squelched the rebellion, few things that he did was he raised Temple Mount, he renamed Jerusalem, Eli Capitolina. He renamed Israel, Philistinia. Mm-hmm. He renamed, like I mentioned this last week, he renamed Shechem Nablus, right? Not Nablus, Neopolis, but which became Nablus. Uh, either way, there is going to begin the process of uh, petering out of Jewish life in Israel. Not going to happen overnight, of course, but at that time it became evident that the growth and the vibrancy was going to be in Babylon and elsewhere in North Africa and in Europe, not in Israel. And of course, this takes a while, but after a couple hundred years, if you were to go to Israel, you'll see that it's, it's very stantly populated with Jews, and it essentially becomes overgrown with nothing. Uh, and even though Judaism, or oh, not Judaism, Israel is no longer at the center of Jewish life, it always was and always will be at the center of Jewish consciousness. Jewish prayer, you know, we pray for the, res- the, the, the restoring of, of the Davidic kingdom, the restoring of Israel, and all that. But for the next, essentially, um, till like the 1900s, there's not going to be a major you know, effort, a global effort, of, of reinstituting Jewish settlement in Israel. There's going to be efforts in the 12th century, there's going to be some efforts, uh, and there's some successful efforts in the 15th century. Uh, the 12th century was to Jerusalem, and 15th century was to northern Israel, to Permanent Tzvat. In the 19th century, in, I'm sorry, in the 18th century, there's going to be a major effort to move to, to Israel. But either way, until the a 19th century. There's not going to be a global effort. Where are the Jews? The Jews are everywhere. They're, they're in Spain, of course. They're in Babylon. Why it just ev- it, all <laughs> attempts were aborted. It's just, you know, we think we think you just get on a plane, go to Israel. Like to go to Israel at the time meant you had to undergo a very treacherous journey. And if you go there, it's barren. What are you going to do there? Mm-hmm. Even, if you, even if you got there, you're on your own. Like it's just overgrown. There's nothing going on there. Mm-hmm. That was basically what was going on in Israel. Nothing. You know, so there were some efforts and some successful, but even successful, they were very, very small scale. Uh, as we know, um, Zionism is not a new idea. It's part of the prayers, restor- restoration of, of Zion. We say those words, uh, but either way, Zionism is the modern uh, effort, political and even religious efforts, uh, to get Jewish people back to Israel. Uh, obviously, we know it's successful. I, I, the details, I, we could be in an entire class. I want to finish the entire thing. But either way, Herzl is another example of a great Jewish leader who doesn't seem to have any business being a Jewish leader. Like we said, he didn't circumcise his kids. You know, His yeah. son, Han, he, son Hans, he didn't circumcise him. He gave him bar mitzvah. He didn't speak Hebrew. He, was, he knew nothing about Jewish, Jewish life, or Jewish philosophy, and Jewish culture. Uh, well, not culture, probably he did, but he didn't know much about a Jewish law, nothing. Like he was an example of, of, of a Jew that was entirely assimilating. Uh, but something awoken within him, and he just, you know, uh, it's, you know, he with, left no expense uh, to try to restore Israel. Just remarkable. Another example of that. Uh, I'm sorry? 
Zionist-type Zionist. Well, Zionism is his idea, but modern political Zionism is, is his, almost single-handedly he started it. Uh, he got political support, and he met with, uh, with world leaders, and he uh, made uh, 1897 the Zionist Congress, the first Zionist Congress, the second Zionist Congress, and he went, and he kind of was the leader of, of a very diverse group of Jews. You had the religious Jews that were thinking about Messiah going back to Israel in a spiritual way. You had the more uh, assimilated Jews who said, well, it's just not a good place for us to live in Europe because things are so bad and so much anti-Semitism. Let's go build a modern state of Jews. It doesn't have to be in Israel. It could be in, in Africa. It could be anywhere. You know, it wasn't anything about restoring Zion. like that. So the, those two groups came together and eventually, as we all know, uh, we're back in Israel now. You know, eight, eight, 1948, May, May 14th, uh, state of Israel was declared. We had some major wars. Obviously, the war of independence of, eight, of, mm-hmm. of 1948, 1949. The signing campaign of 1956. Uh, in 1967, everyone was sure that Israel was going to be destroyed. All foreigners left. They dug uh, 10,000 graves in, in public parks in anticipation of the great slaughter that was going to happen. And as we know, this was a lightning campaign that Jewish people, that the Jewish nation, the Jewish army uh, uh, undertook. And they succeeded in destroying hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of Egyptian warplanes on day one. And they, then they destroyed all the Syrian warplanes. And then they had complete dominance. And they just, you know, they captured the old city, of course. They got the entire Sinai. They got the Golan. They expanded their territory by a factor of like two or three. Enormous. Uh, and, you know, it's things are good. Things are, are progressing. You know, it, I would say that spiritually we would say that this seems to be in line with what the messianic uh, predictions of the Torah, Jewish people come back to Israel. Well, we're back in Israel. Uh, we're not entirely back in Israel. You know, we started off uh, the state of Israel with 600,000, now there's 6 million Jews in Israel. So it's grown by a factor of 10 in, in less than 70 years, which is remarkable. Uh, but uh, things are, I think, in my estimation, moving closer and closer to the ideal. Is it, is it perfect? No. Like, is it... Israel is going to be the Jewish state, but not just the Jewish state... You know, like any other state, it's to be the Jewish state the way the way it's designed to be. But I feel like the 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 direction or the trend is trending more and more towards uh, closer and closer to the way it it, it eventually will be. Uh, there's a bill in in the Knesset right now, which is the Israel labeling Israel as a Jewish state and getting rid of Arab as a, Arabic as a as an official language uh, to. Uh, declare that Israeli law is going to be modeled after Jewish law, halacha. Uh, we know that in Israel there's going, to, you know, there's many many uh, indicators that it's getting closer and closer to what it ultimately will be, and that is the Israel that's designed, uh, you know, for the Jewish people living in a certain spiritual reality and in a way that is not going to cause via their activities, via their actions, via their behavior, to have the land vomit them out. We don't want to go through that again. It's not pleasant. Uh, but I think that the trend is moving in the right direction. I think that you know, in, 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 in direct opposition to the hallmarks or the indicators that contributed to the downfall of Israel multiple times, you know, the, the, the civil war that led to the two different kingdoms or the just, just mess that contributed to the destruction of the Second Temple, those things, I, th- I feel like the trend is happening in the opposite direction where there's, going to, there's more and more of a unification of the people of Israel and the Jewish people at large. And I think that that's a very, very positive towards uh, earning, so to speak, with our uh, behavior uh, collectively, uh, the right to say that we actually deserve to be in the land of Israel and we're doing it the way it's, uh, it's been foretold that it will happen and the way it's, um, we're guaranteed to actually be there and not be kicked out.
that wasn't pleasant. We don't want to go through that again. So that's that. We kind of went a little quickly towards the designism and all that, but uh, that's that's basically it. You know, it's, uh, of course, this could be broken down into many, many more little, you know, course. But that's big picture. It's kind of important to know not just the details, but also the far, so to speak. Is there a question there? No, I was, I was just going to say though that show on PBS that we we're talking about. It starts out showing this film that they thought was lost. That shows the Jews coming to Israel, leaving Europe, and and because of the anti-Semitism, actually coming into Israel to form it. Well, wow. yeah. I mean, it's it's really a good. Well, it shows the successes. Yes. And they really were uh, in this film. It was basically kind of a propaganda film for Jews to show how well the Jews had done, when actually there was a lot that wasn't so great. Um, but in their position, you probably hurt, do the same and thing. It has, and well, has Herzl yeah. and Basel and all of that. That's wow. all in there. Fascinating. Mm-hmm. That's that, guys. Our history is fascinating. And mm-hmm. God sure willing, is. we're going to have a more detailed treatment of history sometime. But I'm sure it's available online. Yes. So. Okay, everyone. I have another uh, I have another meeting at 9, so I'm going to rush out of here. I wish well, you